Life presents the toughest challenges. Every day you are faced with decisions that test your ability to express who you really want to be in this world. We're told to keep saying affirmations and keep thinking positively, but what do you do when that stuff doesn't work? Welcome to the Overwhelmed Brain, where you'll learn to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the life you want now. Hello, this is Paul Coliani. I am your personal empowerment coach, and you're listening to The Overwhelmed Brain. It's the personal growth show for the critical thinker. On every episode, we'll talk about practical down-to-earth steps to help you improve your mood and keep you sane in this powerful journey we call life. I want to help you bridge the gap between your emotions and reason, causing you to discover why you do the things you do and what you can do to reach higher levels of happiness and lower levels of stress and overwhelm. Everything I talk about on this show should not be mistaken or misconstrued or mistranslated for actual medical advice or treatment and is intended to be for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your medical treatment. All right, I want to get right into something that uh, has been on my mind and it's something that my girlfriend and I talked about just last night. Well, first of all, let me say this. I'm grateful for my girlfriend She is a sexual abuse survivor from a long time ago, and it wasn't until she hit her 40s when she could actually start her healing from what happened, which is something she can't even remember. She just knows it happened because of some flashbacks, because of some physical memories that have come up, which I talked about on the uh, sexual abuse episode uh, a few months ago. And uh, if you are a sexual abuse survivor, I recommend you listen to that show. But what I want to talk about is that um, she is also a wealth of information to help me understand the abused mindset and what you carry with you when you go through abuse. And not just sexual abuse, but any type of abuse. Like, because she was abused as a child, she brought a mindset with her into her relationships. She didn't know she had this mindset. Uh, When she was a a teenager, she was very rebellious. She became very resilient, very tolerant of um, bad behavior, which is A, good, and B, bad. (laughs) Because when you're tolerant of bad behavior and you get into a bad relationship, you're tolerant of the bad behavior of the person that you're with. And that can be a problem. So, like I said, my girlfriend and I were talking last night. And yes, I'm super grateful to have her in my life. Not only because I love her and I, I want to be with her and hope it goes on forever. and uh, But also because she's a, a wealth of knowledge from someone who's been there. And one of the things that we talked about last night was the idea of mixed signals in a relationship. Have you ever been in a relationship where you get mixed signals like well he says he loves me but then he does this or she said that she cares about me or she said that she was going to do this but she did that instead or there's incongruent behavior like their intentions don't match their behavior and uh, that's important because what I want to talk about just for a few minutes in this segment is the idea that when you get mixed signals in a relationship 
which ones do you focus on? What was happening in my girlfriend's life was that she, along with many other people that have been through any type of abuse or abusive relationships, she was being strung along by the person who was in her relationship, in in her marriage especially, where she was being emotionally abused. And um, that stringing along is sort of like a reward system that you are seeking these rewards in line with all these bad behaviors. The bad behavior of your partner makes you feel down. It makes you feel bad. And um, that gets repeated several times. And then they make you feel good. And there's the reward. And that's what you latch on to. And that's what you focus on. At least that's what she did. And this is an abused mindset. This is the kind of logic or processing that you take with you when you've learned how to live with bad behavior, when you've learned how to um, survive bad behavior, like you develop these coping mechanisms uh, around people with bad behavior, even, you know, your parents, uh, any caretakers, any, anyone that influenced you in your life, you develop all these uh, coping mechanisms to deal with bad behavior because usually you believe that you don't have a choice. And when you're a kid, you don't really have too much of a choice. So you have to deal with other people's bad behavior. And secondly, you don't even know it's bad behavior, especially the younger you are, the less you realize that bad behavior is being done to you. And I want you to keep that in mind because if you were a very, very young abuse victim, then remember that you had no clue what was right and wrong back then. Uh, And then as you grew older, you suddenly have these uh, memories or these flashbacks of some sort that come back and remind you, oh, what you were doing was wrong. And that's a thought that you're having today about a time that you had no idea what was right or wrong. And even if you did, you couldn't do anything about it. It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. You are dependent on the people that are raising you and bringing you up and hoping that they keep you out of danger. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes they expose you to danger. And then you don't know what's going on. And then you finally develop more conscientiousness about right and wrong and morals and even the law. And you figure out, oh, that was bad or that was wrong. But then you apply today's values and morals and levels of responsibility that you have in your life and you go, oh, I was wrong. And I want you to just cancel that, you know, cut that tether. (laughs) You don't want that in your life. You can't apply today's morals, ethics, and values and beliefs to your one or two or three or seven or even sometimes your 10-year-old self, even older. I mean, you can't apply those things into the past. They're not retroactive. So if you feel any responsibility or shame or guilt because of some danger that somebody put you in in the past, cut the tether. You don't need that anymore. You don't need to uh, be responsible or feel guilty or ashamed about that because they're the ones who are to blame to be responsible. So I don't, I don't know your situation, and you know, but I wanted to give you permission in, in case you never did uh, give that to yourself. So anyway, let's back up and talk about 
uh, the mixed signals that we focus on. Like my girlfriend was focusing on the positive signals that when she was married, she was getting from her husband. Oh, you know, bad behavior, bad behavior, bad behavior. There's a positive signal. Perfect. That shows that he loves me. That shows that he still cares about me. That shows that we're moving in the right direction. And then bad behavior again, bad behavior, bad behavior, Uh, mixed signals, bad signal, bad signal. So it took her many years to finally get to the point where she finally focused on the bad signals instead of the good ones. And, you know, it took a lot of therapy and, and talking to friends and personal growth and healing that she had to go through in order to reach that place. And now that she's there, she doesn't have to um, really think about what to focus on because now she is very aware that if she's ever in a situation with someone else, I don't think she has anything to worry about with me, but you know, there are other relationships in life, friends and family, where there are going to be mixed signals. Typically, it's romantic relationships, but um, she has learned what the bad signals are, what the um, danger signs are. And it's so important that if you're in a relationship of any sort with mixed signals, does he love me? Does she love me? Does, does he want to be with me? Does she have feelings for me? You know, these mixed signals that come up when you're with someone, but you're just in this state of inquiry all the time. You're always thinking and trying to process what's happening and you're looking for those little little rewards. And um, my girlfriend said, focus on the bad signals. Focus on the danger signs, the warning signals. Don't focus on the rewards. The rewards, especially in a mixed signal relationship, only come about, what, 5% of the time, 10%, maybe 30% if you're lucky, if you're in this type of situation where someone is giving you mixed signals, then look at the majority of them. Are the majority of signals, uh, they, do they feel bad? Are they warning signs? Or are the majority of signals good? And then every now and then something seems a little off. It doesn't mean you turn off your observation skills, your awareness. It doesn't mean you turn it off anywhere. I mean, ideally, you want to have 100% faith and trust in your partner and hope they'll do the right thing all the time and just feel comfortable and safe. That's ideal. And that's where I want you to be. That's You should never have to wonder about these things. It should just come naturally when you're in a healthy relationship. When you're in a questionable relationship, then the mixed signals start to appear. And when there's more and more of them, Focus on the bad ones. Focus on the ones that don't make you feel good because uh, what's going to happen is that if you do have an abused mind, if you've carried some sort of mindset into your relationships and you become more and more tolerant of bad behavior, that's what kicks in and you need to be aware of that. Your toleration for bad behavior creates um, an abused mind or a more abused mind. And you start making decisions based on this reward system that I talked about. You're getting drip-fed bad signals, danger signs. And then you get that reward and, oh, they love me. Thank God. Everything's going to be great. But then you get the warning signs again. 
If you focus on the warning signs, then you'll realize, wait, this is a mixed signal situation. This, there are lots of danger signs here. I need to talk with my partner about it. Uh, we need to seek therapy or coaching and we need to get this straightened out before it gets any worse. Or if the mixed signals are suspicions of betrayal or deception or anything like that, then maybe it goes deeper and maybe you need to do some sleuthing. I'm not saying you should sneak around and spy, but uh, I would. <laughs> I hope I never have to do that. But if I wanted to find something out, I would. <laughs> I'm not telling you that you should. I'm just saying what I would do. It's my personal opinion. Uh, hopefully, I never have to deal with that. Hopefully, I've attracted a healthy relationship into my life. And that's not going to be a, a thing. But I know how I think. <laughs> so anyway, I hope that helps you if you're in any type of situation that you have mixed signals in your relationship. We'll be right back with the uh, next segment called Ask Paul. All right, this segment's called Ask Paul. This is where I read a listener email on the air and do my best to help them. <laughs> I help them through a challenge, any query that they might have. So let's get to this letter. Hi, Paul. I've listened to your show for the past two years, and I've been so thankful to have found somewhere I can go to get no-nonsense advice on dealing with real life. Hey, that's good. I might have to put that in the intro. <laughs> I found your podcast during a time in my life where I had recently lost a pregnancy, which led to trouble in my marriage, while at the same time my job had reached a point of nearly unbearable pressure. My now ex-husband was judgmental and unsupportive. He lost both of his parents early in life, and I believe it made him numb to pain and unable to be empathetic to others' suffering. Because of this, I was forced to heal from our loss of the baby by myself, something I'm still working on every day. As a way to cope with the pain of the loss and the rapid deterioration of my marriage, I poured myself into my career, working 60-plus hours a week and isolating myself from others. It was simply too painful to talk to them about what was going on in my life, and because it felt my husband had turned his back on me, I was worried that others would do the same once they knew the depth of the pain I was feeling. In the past few months, I have begun to feel the sunshine again, and I have come out of what I am now recognizing may have been a form of depression, although highly functioning. All the hours and hard work that I poured into my job have paid off, and my career couldn't be in a better place. I've even met someone new, and I'm in the beginning of a wonderful relationship. His last relationship also had a lot of uh, the same incompatibilities as mine did. So over the past year and a half, my coping mechanism has been to keep myself busy. If I'm working hard, I'm happier than when I'm idle. But I'm starting to see the signs of burnout. I realize that I don't know how to turn off my overwhelmed brain and actually relax. And the worst part is I spend more time thinking about all the things I should be doing instead of actually doing them. I want to move forward with a life that is both fulfilling and happy. And I want to make room in my brain to enjoy the simple things. My question for you is this. After a long period of being in the figurative pressure cooker, how do I retrain my brain to relax and enjoy the moment? I never thought finding balance could be so hard. Thank you in advance for your reply. All right, I'm going to call you... Um, it's a name I haven't used in a while. Melanie. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used that name. All right, Melanie, thank you so much for writing that. And uh, first of all, 
you know, sorry for your loss. That's, that's tough. Um, you're dealing with uh, the loss of a child, probably one of the most painful things that could ever happen. And I can't imagine what you went through and what you're going through. And now I'm going to give you some unorthodox advice, or at least a suggestion that um, when you deal with loss, the person or in any case, an animal, what you lost is still there. Again, this is unorthodox and it's going to be a little strange for some people, but uh, what I found is that when you have a great loss, when there's a person or an animal that you lose and uh, they're still fresh in your mind and you think about them and you miss them and you love them and, and you wish they were back, my unorthodox suggestion is to visit them in your mind and actually have a conversation with them. Now, even though you lost a pregnancy, I'm assuming that means you lost your child before he or she was born. It doesn't matter. You developed an attachment to your child and you had communication going on before he or she was ever born because your body is communicating with the child's body and um, fluids and nutrients and all these other things are being passed to the child and that child was a part of you. So you already know how to communicate with that child. So that's what I want you to do. I want, and anyone's listening, if you've gone through a loss and you still think about this person or this animal or whatever you've lost, take some quiet time and uh, picture them in your mind's eye. And then say what you want to say and ask questions that you want to ask. And the weird part is, if that's not weird enough, <laughs> is that they'll answer. They will answer. And you will get some healing. I've done this with uh, clients. Clients who have suffered losses that uh, they have not gotten over for years and years and years and years. And then they have a conversation with this lost person and they might even dream of the lost person that night after they have the conversation. Healing takes place. And regardless of what you believe all that means, it doesn't matter. Your belief, <laughs> whatever is out there, doesn't matter because your mind is still attached to the form it is, if that makes any sense. And it doesn't really have to make sense. It's just that your mind is attached to the form that you picture in your mind. So you bring that form to your mind and you have a conversation with it. So that's the first part of my reply to you. So I, I hope that helps you get through some healing. And your child will always be with you. But it should get easier and easier. And you should find more and more happiness as you go through life where that doesn't uh, bring you down. You, know, you can certainly still miss your child, but you don't have to carry around the loss because... They're right there. They're, they're with you. So anyway, let's get to the second part of your question, which is, uh, you know, you worked 60 plus hours a week and it was keeping you busy. And now you're coming out of that uh, rat race mentality, I guess. And you want to know, how do I get out of the pressure cooker state, the overwhelmed brain state? <laughs> I should know something about this. And uh, to a normal state where you can relax and enjoy the moment. I never thought finding balance could be so hard. 
While I could give you the uh, practical advice and say, you need to meditate. (laughs) That would be helpful. And I do recommend that. I do recommend you take quiet time to yourself and uh, meditate. But what what does that mean? And can you even do it? Can an active-brained person do it? And the answer might be no. Maybe sitting down drives you crazy. (laughs) Maybe uh, closing your eyes is part of the problem because when you close your eyes, your your brain is going nuts. So I'm going to teach you something that uh, I learned that is not necessarily a sit down in lotus position, close your eyes, and empty your mind meditation. It's not that. (laughs) My meditation goes something like this. I like to think externally. I like to think outside my mind. And, I'll, and I've shared this before, but I'm going to tell you how, how I do it. I like to, um, like for example, come up to uh, a tree. And I look at the tree as if I've never seen it before. And I want you to try this. I really want you to find anything where you are now, in your house, outside, preferably in uh, a living organism, a plant, an animal, an, another person if you want. I'll just make sure that they don't know you're examining them. But pretend you were born this morning. And yes, you can talk and think and all that stuff. You're not just an infant walking around with an empty brain. But that would be nice too. (laughs) That might work. But uh, just pretend that you were born this morning and you've never seen everything that you're seeing right now. You don't know what it is. You're experiencing it for the first time. But focus on one thing. Choose some sort of living organism. If I'm looking at a tree, instead of going in my mind going, I know what a tree is, and I know that seeds get planted to plant a tree, and I know that they grow toward the sun, I ask myself, what if I didn't know that? Then I want you to start asking yourself that question about um, what you're looking at. What if I didn't know what that was? What is this? surface. I've never felt this surface before. And look at all the grooves and crevices and feel the hardness and you're just feeling this thing and you have no clue what it is. And you look at it and you go, how did this even come to be? What this is, is you're developing an intense curiosity about something. And you can do this with something that you have never seen before. Like I like to do this at sometimes at the aquarium. I look at um, some aquatic creature that I've never seen before. There's always something that you've never seen before, unless you're a marine biologist. <laughs> but even they're discovering new species all the time. But you get there and you look at a creature and you go, whoa, how did this creature come to be? Why does it have those colors? Why does it have the legs it has or the fins it has or the tentacles it has? What in evolution caused it to create those things why does it change color you know why is it luminescent you have all these questions and like why are i think i saw one fish with two eyes on one side of its head (laughs) why are its eyes on one side of its head that's so strange and so you you have this fascination as if you were a child that has never seen something before in this puts you in the present moment this grounds you as soon as you go in your head and you go, oh, I know all that stuff. I, I know what that's about. Then you're back in your logical processing state where you are opening your I know box. 
I know that, I know that, I know that. And this is what I need to do next, and this is what I need to do next. But I like to say, what would happen if I didn't know? What would happen if I wasn't inside my mind giving meaning and finding purpose, and I was outside my mind trying to understand everything at the most basic level because I didn't understand it? You have no idea. If you really practice this with anything, you can even do it with inanimate objects. Just practice it and go, wow, what would happen if I didn't know what that was, how it was made, how it came to be, what, you know, where it came from, all these questions come to mind. So that's a nice way to be in the present moment. Another way to do it, and this is very helpful for people with um, ADD, ADHD, and I was taught this in um, NLP, it's uh, Neuro Linguistic Programming. I've heard it called different things, peripheral vision, learning state. What you do is find a spot on the wall and you stare at the spot. And I'm doing it right now just so I can teach this correctly. (laughs) And as you stare at the spot, you're focused on that spot. But then you allow your focus to widen and expand beyond the spot, left and right, up and down. You keep your eyes on that spot, but you start to be more aware of your peripheral vision. And you'll notice as it expands outward that your peripheral becomes part of your awareness. And then you can stare straight ahead and still see to your left and to your right and up and down. Unless you have a a problem with one eye or you can't see at all, that's that's a different story. Uh, But if both of your eyes are functioning, then you can do this exercise and it puts you in peripheral vision. I mean, you know what peripheral vision is, right? If you've ever driven a car and you see a car come up uh, to your left, you don't even have to look because you know it's there. Your peripheral picked it up. And uh, driving a car is one of those times where you can be staring and you miss four exits and you go, oh, (laughs) I need to get off and go back four exits because I missed my turn. Because you're in that zone, you're kind of in the present, even though you're a little unconscious and you're on autopilot. But you can do that process manually. You can stare at a spot and let your awareness expand. And as it expands and you become more aware of your peripheral vision, you take this awareness with you wherever you go. So you set yourself up first. Step one, find a spot, any spot. Maybe there's a spot on your wall. Maybe there's a spot on that piece of glass or even on the table. And don't do this while you're driving. (laughs) But uh, you expand your awareness into your peripheral vision. And then you notice that in this state of peripheral vision, you are a little bit more relaxed. You're a little less stressed. You're not thinking so much because your awareness, again, is outside of you. Notice how I took you there twice. I'm taking you outside of your mind. And you're in this space of, I can see more if I pay attention to more. And you know when this is really interesting to do is when you're with a group of people. If you stay in peripheral vision like this, you can notice other people's behavior when you or other people talk. I do this a lot. (laughs) I'll be in a group of people and I will be looking at the person talking, but my peripheral vision will stay aware of everyone else's behavior. And I can see people uh, moving their hand up to scratch their nose. I can see people shifting 
uh, you know, doing all kinds of things. And the reason I do that is because I find it interesting when people react and respond to what's being said. So if the person's talking about, um, I think a good example, the last time I did this was uh, in a group of people where there was one Trump supporter. I think I mentioned this last week. There was one Trump supporter and the rest of them were, I don't know, independent supporters, Hillary supporters. But I was watching the Trump supporter talk and my peripheral vision was looking for any clues of uh, nonverbal language, like people moving, people shifting, uh, people looking around. And I could see it all. And I was very present. And that's a great thing to practice to keep you present, to keep you aware. Because when you can do this in a group of people, not only will it keep you less judgmental, but it also keeps you very much in the know of how people are feeling. I mean, that's sort of what's called mind reading. (laughs) But you can see people, you know, getting uncomfortable in their chair. You can see people looking around, not wanting to pay attention to be what's being said. But, you know, the idea is not to give it meaning. Again, just be open to whatever it means to them. You don't give it meaning. Whatever it means to them is whatever it means. So that's a great space to be in. And it doesn't have to be with just people. You can do that in the park. You can do it in a classroom. If you have a kid that ha- his brain is wired like the internet where you can just get instant information fast and if you don't have it your brain is on to the next thing that's what it sounds like your brain's doing my brain's on to the next thing my brain's on to the next thing uh, then what if you wanted to relax and be maybe single-minded single-focused put yourself in that peripheral vision state and in a classroom that's a great state to be in Because now you're open to learning more about the environment, about what's being taught, and uh, you're you're not so much in your own brain. So there's a a couple neat things you can do to keep you out of that uh, hectic state. The more you practice that, the more you create sort of a, a living or a walking meditation. So it doesn't have to be cross-legged in the lotus position saying om Uh, although if you get to that point great more power to you Um, i also highly encourage you to have a room that's quiet into yourself for some people that's the bathroom (laughs) but if you have a larger living area with a space that you can create some sort of getaway from everyone and everything from every influence in the house You know, maybe you light a candle, maybe you light incense, or maybe uh, you just uh, have some soft music or just complete quiet and then dim lights or something. Then that's a great way to um, get away from all the influences. And it's funny because uh, the past week or two, I've been doing a meditation almost every night right before sleeping that has to do with uh, what would happen if I was the last person alive. Like if I was the only person on earth, what would happen? And I keep meditating on that. I keep thinking, what would I do on day one? Now, what would I do on day two? What would I think? What would I feel? And what would I do on day three? And every night I have a different day and different things come up. It's a mystery why I'm the only person on earth. (laughs) But it doesn't matter because that's part of my meditation. What would I do? Because when nobody is around to influence you, when nobody is around to 
tell you what to do, tell you what they like, tell you what they don't like. Nobody's around to say I love you or I hate you. When nobody's around to do any of this stuff, then who are you? It's sort of um, an identity-finding exercise. It's a neat thing, and, and maybe it'll work for you. Maybe it'll make you incredibly lonely. I don't know if you should do that. <laughs> but it's been a neat process because it puts me in a place of I have no choice but to deal with it. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'll put myself in a space of I have no choice but to deal with this. So what would I do? It's kind of like when I thought of um, answering your question about how do I get out of my overwhelmed brain? The first thing that came to mind is, well, have your husband drive you 10, 15 miles out, drop you off with nothing but a water bottle, uh, maybe a backpack, <laughs> some snacks, and some good uh, walking shoes, and then walk home. <laughs> because I guarantee you, if you have a racing mind, eventually... Uh, unless you're a jogger that runs every day, <laughs> if you're not one of those, uh, then 10 or 15 miles is going to seem like a long walk. Eventually, your mind's going to stop racing and start thinking about, damn, my feet hurt. <laughs> or damn, my leg muscles are sore. You will start decreasing the circle of brain processing that is so uh, big right now. If that makes sense. Like I picture this big giant circle around you with all these thoughts that can fit I guess you can call it a ball all these thoughts that fit in this giant ball of thought but what would happen if I decreased the size of that ball and you could only fit so many thoughts in what would happen if you walked five miles that ball would get a lot smaller and a lot smaller until all you could think about was I just want to get home <laughs> and then it was so small that uh, all you could think about was yourself and wanting to get home. Because I guarantee you, there's nothing else is going to be on your mind. I mean, I can't guarantee that, but I'm pretty sure you're going to get to the point where the only focus is on a single target, a single goal, a single destination. And then when you arrive home, you're going to have the most wonderful, relaxing peace <laughs> that you can imagine because you just went through uh, whatever hell to get there. I'm, I'm sure some people out there are thinking 10 miles is nothing. <laughs> that's why I'm like, okay, if 10 miles is nothing to you, go 15, go 20. But again, that's not really a suggestion. I'm not telling you to do that. That's just the first thing that came to my mind when I read your question. So I hope this helps you, Melanie. And uh, also, of course, get the book. It's called The Overwhelmed Brain. <laughs> it's at Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. Find it, get it, read it. That will also put you in a very present, very grounded place because it's all about you and you working on yourself and healing and growing and learning and evolving and all that. So there you go, Melanie. Thanks so much again for writing and uh, I wish you the best. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be right back. I'll say some thank yous and my final thoughts. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I have a couple thank yous for a couple of reviewers in Amazon who decided to leave 
reviews for my book called The Overwhelmed Brain. One is Be The Change. That's their reviewer name. Be The Change left a stellar review of the book. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I am so glad that you got something from this. I'm so glad that you got value from the book. And also, thank you to Shoe Girl. (laughs) I wonder if Shoe Girl likes shoes. Well, if you're going to practice that present moment stuff, then you can look at your shoes. What is this thing that looks like it might fit on my foot? (laughs) How is it created? Where did it come from? Shoe Girl, thank you so much for your amazing review. I appreciate that. And finally, thank you to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in The Overwhelmed Brain. And one thing I didn't mention in in the last segment was that um, it's possible that Melanie would get a lot from figuring out her values. I know if you've been listening a while, you're like, oh, you're going to talk about values again. (laughs) It's always values. You know, values are one of those things where you look at the major areas of your life and you go, what's important to me about that? What's important to me about work and career? What's important to me about family? What's important to me about relation, my relationships? What's important to me about my spirituality? Values are what is what are important to you. So I like to tell you to write down everything that's important to you about the major areas of your life so that when you make decisions, you evaluate those decisions, you compare them to your values. I do offer the Stop Self-Sabotage Worksheet on my website, theoverwhelmedbrain.com. If you want the worksheet that walks you through that, I'm not here to sell that because I'm telling you how to do it now. (laughs) The worksheet is more involving though, and it does come with a link to a video where I explain it better. But in a nutshell, I, I want you to figure out what you value most, especially if you're in any place of uh, indecision or you're making decisions, but each one or many of them are self-sabotaging. Because when you're not in alignment with your values, you usually create uh, a path of sabotaging yourself somehow. Something happens. There's a self-destruct mode in there somewhere (laughs) that keeps happening because you're out of alignment with your values. For example, I had a, um, a client use the email coaching through the patron program the other day, and she shared with me her values. And I was able to, you know, go through them and ask her some very specific questions regarding, you know, is, is this more important than this? And if you had this value, would it also give you this? Or if you didn't have this value, could you have this as well? I mean, there's a lot of questions that I put on the worksheet that you can ask yourself. If I had, like, um, for example, I give this example all the time. When I was married, my wife said that her number one value in relationships was safety. And what's funny is that I wasn't safe. It was not funny. It was awful. But at the time, I was not safe. I was judgmental. I would withdraw my emotions. I would give her the silent treatment. I would do many things that uh, certainly made her feel bad. And, you know, she didn't not only feel bad, but she didn't feel secure. She didn't know where I was. So I was a random variable. I would, I would, I was a wild card in her life. Where am I? What are you thinking now? You're not sharing anything with me. That would, that would be her thought process. And so I helped her define her values, which revealed to me some stuff about myself because I was not meeting those values. That was helpful to me. Didn't solve the problem. I was still, I don't know, kind of a jerk. (laughs) 
I finally uh, did some other stuff to do some healing, but by then it was too late and the marriage ended. But uh, I did learn a lot about myself when she said her number one value was safety. Because usually what you value most is what you want the most or what you lack the most sometimes. So if her number one value is safety, guess what I was giving her the least of? Because if she didn't have safety, then nothing else mattered. Love didn't matter. Having fun with your partner didn't matter. You know, laughing didn't matter because she didn't feel safe. And that's what I want you to do is to create these lists of values in your life. And this is only if your life's not working in some area. Like, it's working great in relationships, but I'm doing terrible in my spirituality or my career. Great, so write down the word career and write down what's important to you about career. Ah, weekends off. Great. Uh, you know, 20 bucks an hour or 100 bucks an hour, whatever it is for you. Great. Must be compensated fairly. Great. Um, must be respected by my boss. Great. Just keep writing down those values. And then you put them in the order that are most important to least important. And then when you come up with the top five values... Again, this is more laid out in the worksheet. I'm doing, giving you the highly condensed version. Those top five values are going to be what you stay in alignment with if you want your life to work out well. And a good example of that is when my wife and I were broke and I had no job, we both had no job, and I finally got a job, it met the value of must make money. It wasn't a fair wage, but at that time, <laughs> we had nothing. So it was, a, it was better than zero. So, okay, cross that value off. Um, I liked what I was doing, cross that value off. Um, I liked my coworkers, cross that value off. All these values I'm crossing off. But then one day, I suggested that we do something with the website and um, add some support videos and do other things that would help us do our job better. You know, I was being creative, I was being helpful. I was thinking, hey, let's, you know, we're spending a lot of time doing this. This would save us time. So we can um, spend more time doing other things. And the answer I got was, hey, that's great and all, but just keep your head down and focus on the horizon and keep doing your job. And I was like, what? <laughs> I felt uh, defeated. Uh, I felt like my creative input wasn't valued. And um, he also told me that, uh, you know, we don't work like that around here. We already have systems in place and we're not open to change. And I was whoa, I felt just so stifled. And I don't even think this was, this was on my value sheet, but I, I suddenly realized that I need to have my creative input at least listened to and considered instead of just shut down with no option <laughs> to give my input. That suddenly became a value and go, oh, so now I'm in this position where I go, oh, I have, I have no option for creative input. Oh, this sucks. But, you know, everything else was being met. And I was like, okay, I'll keep my head down, focus on the horizon, and uh, just do my job. That's fine. Until one day he said, all right, now we're going to put you on phones. And up to that point, I'd just been behind a computer doing my thing, testing um, golf gadgets and stuff. I thought it was like a more technically oriented job where I just had to play with the hardware. And he said, now we're going to put you on phones and you're going to be frontline technical support. And you're going to answer phones and talk to golfers all day. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, that's the last thing I'm thinking in my mind. That's the last thing I want to do. 
oh, and suddenly I realized that uh, one of my values was being violated here, which was uh, I must be respected at work. And it wasn't that, it was the uh, creative input. I felt like that creative input was part of being respected. You know, I want, I want my opinion valued and, and respected and at least considered. So I, I put that in the category of uh, being respected at work, which it wasn't happening. And then this came along where I wasn't supposed to go on phones. It wasn't, the job wasn't sold to me like that. And I suddenly felt another value of, I must enjoy what I do <laughs> being violated. I would not enjoy that. I would not enjoy answering phones all day. I've done that in the past. And anyone who does that, more power to you. I don't know how you do it. You have to be a technical whiz and a psychologist. <laughs> because most of the people that call you all day are very angry. Because their technology doesn't work. And you have to calm them down. It is a job for the highly resilient and highly skilled at people and highly skilled at um, social skills <laughs> and technology. And uh, I have both, but I did not want to wear myself out doing something that I just didn't like doing. So boom, I had two values there. I didn't enjoy my job and I was feeling disrespected. So even though my wife and I needed the money, I quit. And if I had stayed, it would have made me unhappy and it would have sabotaged my path of my career. I know it sounds strange because you're supposed to make money when you work, but this is what I mean. This is why it's so important to know your values, to know what's important to you and to not settle for anything less because as soon as you settle and you get that feeling like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. I, I feel like I'm going against my own integrity. As soon as you get that feeling, then nothing else matters. You, you can meet the other values and it won't matter because you'll be unhappy. And I decided to quit and we went back to the soup kitchen and I was happier than ever <laughs> because I wasn't being disrespected and I wasn't in a place that I didn't enjoy my job. And also doing that uh, led to a better opportunity down the road because now I was free to explore other opportunities, which was the opposite of self-sabotaging behavior. So that's a lot of stuff I just put in there and it's very in-depth. Uh, and if you're interested in that, go ahead and get the Stop Self-Sabotage Worksheet at TheOverwhelmedBrain.com. Otherwise, use this verbal um, walkthrough and see what you can come up with. And just to start you off so you can come up with a list, let me give you these steps. Open your mind, step into your power, and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.